So today I wanted to talk a little bit about <clears throat> Chita because my heart is overwhelmed today. You know, the Buddha, when he talked, he said sometimes he, he spoke gently, sometimes he spoke harshly, <laughs> and sometimes he spoke gently and harshly. So it's not so much speaking with such kind words or the ways we are accustomed to being spoken to, but more about uh, the substance and how it can set us free, how it can liberate us from what ails us. And I'm reflecting on this past year at Hartwood and pondering, have we practiced well? And if the Dharma has efficacy and effect, and if we have a true desire for liberation, and have we put forth even minimal effort, then there should be some signs. <laughs> we used to sing a song in Christianity about the, uh, if you got the old time religion, you ought to show some signs. Because it's not something that we talk about, although we talk about it. It's really something that we embody. So we shouldn't fool ourselves uh, nor should we rely on uh, soothing words to make us feel better. No, we should be better. And I think we would do well to abandon the words practice and practitioner, actually, because somehow it seems to invite us to uh, cultivate an attitude about living that is on the ordinary level of things. You know, we undertake things because we want to learn how to play this or learn how to do that or be better at this or to be better at that, you know. We do these things to increasing our uh, egoic sense of self, you know, accomplishments in worldly gains, in worldly attributes, you know, in worldly ways. But to embark on the Buddhist path, a journey to awakening is more than that, and it requires more than dropping one marble, you know, one more into our bag of marbles. Buddhism, for me, is a way of life where we freely and with great relish choose to uncover that within us which is unbounded, without boundary which is boundless, and therein lies the freedom. Buddha called it the unborn, the unconditioned. He said, if there is the born, there is the unborn. If there is the conditioned, there is the unconditioned. And then he goes on to tell us how we are conditioned, what we are fettered by, what we are tied to, what we are encumbered by, what we are hindered by, that we cannot experience that which is unhindered, that which is unfettered, that which is unconditioned. And he says that we can touch that reality here and now, even in this human body even within this human life. So externally, we are deeply connected to others. 
and to everything, not in a sticky attachment way, but through seeing others as oneself. And as we do that, then we know that whatever fears or aspirations or joys or sorrows, whatever losses or gains, we can deeply understand that. And we can truly be touched by the, the feelings of infirmities and even the joys of others. So if sitting there close is affecting your hearing, maybe you could move to the other side. Wasn't that loud last week? Sure. Well, that was last week, and today is today. So perhaps <laughs> if you can sit there, that would give you a little bit Fine. more relief. Thank you. And then we can respond to situations, not just with compassion, but with the power of compassion. You see, compassion is not a feeling. It's a power. But this capacity stems from being internally empty, and spacious, you know, without a self-desire and with a focus that's above the welfare for just oneself, but for the welfare of others. And so our perspective becomes unilateral. When someone is squealing, we can perceive why they hurt. And if they can't take the pen out, we can just pull it out. And then we might have to bandage it up. Sometimes it's, it's accepting defeat and giving the victory to another. It's the strong bearing the infirmities of the woman. It's a cutting off of something or bringing an end to something that will cause more suffering and more harm. And so it may seem harsh to cut it off right here, but better to cut it off and lose an arm than to bleed out and lose the whole body. And it's knowing the right ways and the right times to do it. And who should do it? There may be something that needs to be said, but I'm not the one to say it. There may be something to be said, and I'm the one to say it but not in this way. There means something that needs to be said, and I'm the one to say it, and say it in this way, but not at this time. Or maybe I'm not the one to say it at all. And we need to ponder deeply the proper approach and the skillful way to surmount every obstacle, every difficulty, to be with every circumstance so that we know how to help and not to harm. To the one who has great determination, they will allow you to deal with them because they're really looking for a way out. But the one who has minimal uh, commitment, oh, you have to handle them so gently because they only have this much of a commitment to it, this much of a tolerance. So you have to give them a little bit of pablum. But to the one who's fully committed, they said, like, give it to me raw, because I'm trying to cut the time short. Let's get it done. <laughs> you know? And so you have to know who's who and what's what. And sometimes one comes along and they appear to be so strong, but oh, if you had eyes to see, you could see they're so fragile. Mm. And there's another who wears the dress of fragility, but you know, they're really strong. They're really tough. And that's part of their cover. And they're waiting for someone to say, I see you. 
And these are the skills that come and would make us ultimately into a good friend in the Dharma. A good friend in the Dharma. The operative phrase there is in the Dharma. A good friend. Because in a worldly sense, a good friend is one that agrees with you. A good friend is that when you're angry with somebody, they're angry with them. A good friend is one that says when they did something, let's go get them. A good friend, you know, that's what we call a good friend in the world. But the Dharma speaks of a good friend in a different way. The good friend is one who, when they see you caught in a, in a fall, they say, oh, friend, don't act that way. Remember this, and they give you some Dharma to strengthen you, to get you back on the path. That's what a good friend is, what a good friend does. A good friend is when one sees that you're in a bad mood or in your, when you're in a bad way and you speak out of that, that state. They say, well, I'll just leave her alone right now. She'll be all right after a while. And don't turn to fight her. A, a, a good friend of the Dharma is one who, when I was the one in that bad state and I acted out and acted ugly, come back to you and say, I had literally lost my mind. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Has the, the hum, hum, humility, the clear sightedness to relieve themselves. It wasn't even so much for the other person, but to relieve oneself. To find one's inner integrity and come clean. And we don't think of that as being a takedown or a smackdown. We think of that as a build up when we're seriously about our freedom. There's a, uh, a scripture in the Bible that I like, and it says that slaves should obey his master. Because this is right, but if you see an opportunity for your freedom, take it. <laughs> so you have to find out what that means. Find out the wisdom in that. Between the circumstance you find yourself in and the way of freedom. So when we have the power of compassion, our perspective becomes unilateral. What is beneficial for oneself and beneficial for others. Not just what's beneficial for others, but also what is beneficial for oneself. I was talking to Pandita the other day, and he said, the longer I stay here, the stronger I get. He said, when I come up to Hardwood, he said, people, visitors coming in, they say, oh, what a wonderful atmosphere. He said, but I have lived here at this small hermitage with you <coughs> and Kay for 20 years. We never had an argument. We never once put ourselves above the other. He said, when I go up there, I can feel that energy. And it drains me. So when I find myself decreasing, he said, I have to separate myself to build my strength up. And I was so sorrowful to hear that. Of course, I know it's true. But for it to be articulated, he said, when you go up today, tell everybody I love them. I said, no, I'm going to tell them about the conversation we really had. I know you love them. That, they don't need that for help. But I'm going to tell them how you really feel. And so I've told you, do with that what you will. 
Not because you love Ponya deeper, but because you desire truth in the inward parts. Not because you love Ponya deeper, but because you see the dawn. And when we walk in what we see, everything else gets taken care of. So how I think and act and speak that is for the highest good of myself and others, the most considerate, that displays the greatest respect for all of us. He said, no one is ever disrespectful to me, but they are disrespectful to each other. <coughs> he said, they're always thinking about what they can do for me. How much do they think about what they can do for each other? In the Majin and the Kai of Sutta number 128, and I'm going to say this briefly because I've been preaching this Sutta all day, so really no need to go into it in a lot of detail today. But just as a reminder, and I want to encourage you to uh, look this Sutta up on the internet. Just Google it. MN-128 Buddhism. <clears throat> it said, it tells a story about um, a community, a Buddhist community, practitioners, and the Buddha went to visit them, but they were wrangling and bickering and, you know, uh, stabbing each other, he said, with verbal daggers. It said, when many voices shout at once, none considers himself a fool. Though the Sangha is being split, none thinks himself to be at fault. But they have forgotten thoughtful speech, and they talk obsessed by words alone. And uncurb their mouths, they bawl at will. None knows what leads them to act so. Those do not recognize that here we should restrain ourselves. But those wise ones realize this as ones in their enmity. It says if one can find a worthy friend, a virtuous, steadfast companion, then overcome all threats of danger and walk with him, contented and mindful. But if one finds no worthy friend, no virtuous, steadfast companion, then as a king leaves his conquered realm, walk like a tusker in the woods alone, because better it is to walk alone. There's no companionship with fools. Walk alone and do no evil at ease like a tusker in the woods. And after he said that to them, he got his bowl, he got his robe, and he left the community. <clears throat> and then he went down the road and there were there was another group. It was just three of them. I like that number three. You know, uh, uh, a cord, you can twist it, but it unbinds. You know, but a three cord, like a plaque, it doesn't unravel. So I like that number three. But anyway, he goes down the road and then he finds three practitioners practicing. You know, we don't have to have a community full of people. You know, even three is a good number. <laughs> and he said, uh, uh, he went to them and he said, uh, I hope that you all are all living in accord with mutual appreciation, without disputing, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. He said, indeed, Buddha, we are doing that. He said, um, he said, how do you do that? He said, 
said, well, I consider it's a gain. It's a great gain for me that I'm living with such companions in the holy life. I maintain bodily acts of loving kindness towards them, openly and privately. I maintain verbal acts of loving kindness towards them, both openly and privately. I maintain <clears throat> mental acts of loving kindness towards them, both openly and privately. And I say, why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do? Uh, we are different in body, yet we are one in mind. So my question today is, are you striving today to be one in mind? If so, when untoward thoughts come up about me first, or what I like first, or what I want first, or what even kind of personality matches my personality, these are not the criteria for living together as a sangha. He gives us the criteria. Why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what these vulnerable ones want to do? Because we are different in body, but we are one in mind. And then he said, uh, I hope you're living in concord with mutual appreciation, without disputing, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kind eyes. He said, we are indeed venerable, sir. He said, good, good. He said, but how do you do that? And he went on to talk about how they do that, how they pitch in together when something needs to be done, and how when they look, they can anticipate what needs to be done. They don't just show up on Sunday for Dhamma talk. They know that this takes something for us to even have this place. They come and, and they help to make it, they help to beautify it, they help to pay for it. They help, they do all of these things. This is what it takes, not just all on one person, not just all on two or three. It says we come together as a group. We take ownership of it and we're responsible for what comes and what goes here. We're responsible for what happens here and what doesn't happen here. We're responsible for our own development, for our own cultivation. But we're also responsible for not being a hindrance to the other. This is what it means. And so they explained how they live like that. You know, one goes out and gets food and the other didn't, and one didn't feel like going or couldn't go, then he sets out the place and he gets it ready. He says, another comes back late, there's no food left, he doesn't say, oh, you didn't fix me a plate. He just cleans up for them because he got there at cleanup time. And so he just starts cleaning up and he puts things away. Without any thought, like, they didn't save me any food. He No, he just, a way that you train the mind and a way that you sweeten the mind so that you're, you're happy in all circumstances, you're contented. Fewness of wishes, esteeming the other, if not more highly than oneself, certainly equally with oneself. Now, if you want to do that, then we can call that practice. But if we're not doing that, let's not call it practice. And so he said, good, good, Anaruta. And while you abide thus, diligent, ardent, and resolute. Listen, he calls this diligence, art, ardency, and resolve. Now, when we think of being diligent, ardent, and resolute, we think about being diligent, ardent, and resolute around the Dharma. But here he's speaking about how that is embodied and how that is outpatient. And it's an outpicture in how we relate to one another. So if you want to evaluate yourself, how your practice is progressing, it's around 
in these kinds of ways. There is no getting beyond the other. Because that's where the platform of our virtue is established. And if we don't have that, there's no point in trying to go anywhere else. There's no point in trying to do anything else. He said, because it won't work. And don't take my word for it. I'm going to read it for you in the angle to learn And so he says, good. And then he says, and Anaruta, while you abide, thus diligent, ardent, and resolute, have you attained any superhuman states? Uh, and what is a superhuman state? A distinction in knowledge and vision worthy of noble ones, a comfortable body. And so he starts going, and then from this point on, he goes into you know, all of the things that are happening in their meditation. He says, yes, um, we are, and we perceive both light and vision of forms, and soon after that disappears. He said, why is that? He said, we don't know. He said, but you should know why. And he'd say, when I was an unenlightened Bodhisattva, these things happened too. You know? And I asked myself, why? He says, and I realized that certain defilements came up in the mind. Now he starts to talk about those defilements. These are the things that hinder us in our meditation practice, or our practice, or our work, or our effort, or on the pillow, because off the pillow we're not living the life. And so he talks to us about living the life off the pillow, so that when we sit, there are no hindrances to our stepping into reality. And we touch it, and we come out. We touch it, and we come out. We touch it, we stay a little longer in it, so like the bloom remains on the rose. And then there's this mutual feeding of the progress we make on the pillow and off the pillow. We don't have to be a rocket scientist, we don't have to be a scientist at all to get this. But there are certain ways that we have to conduct ourselves in early, in everyday life. and certain ways that we have to think and we have to have a resolve Act. That is what the training is. If we didn't need to be trained, it wouldn't be called training. If we didn't want to live differently, we wouldn't come and listen to this. We come because there is something that we know is possible. It's in our view. We get an inkling of it. We get a feeling of it from time to time. But the good we would do, we don't do. And what we don't want to do, we do. And so then we seek out a teacher. Uh, we seek out instruction. We seek out a path. We seek out a way to bring into fullness, to bring into fruition that we get that which we get glimpses of. This is the real life. This is the Dharma and he he and he attaches it to something. He calls it the Dharma and the discipline. I have to have the Dharma and the discipline. And so he begins to instruct them. Because now he can take them to the next step in their meditation. They're getting to a certain place, and then it's like cut off. He says, I don't know, it just it's, you know, it didn't go any further, or something happened, and, and, he, and he begins to tell them what they need to do to take the next step. But look where he started. He started with how they relate to one another. He started with uh, bringing forth that resolve in our thoughts, in our speech, and in our actions that is useful, that is kind, that is beneficial. And so when we uh, 
go into meditation. We experience a freedom that, you know, from time to time, that when we synchronize our mind to that frequency of virtue, operating from uh, loving kindness, a space of compassion, you know, of mutual appreciation and equanimity. I could have been complaining about the water in the basement, but I chose to turn my mind to something else, and gladness arose, gratitude arose, appreciation arose. One reason it arose for me is because Kay bought that house for us to live in. Kay pays that note every month. I don't work. I have no money. I only have what people offer. So I live my life, give my life in service. And whatever I get, I get. Some appreciate, some don't. And so I took my mind to gratitude. I took my mind to, oh, I have to share this with Kay about how all this at least eight inches of water gathered underneath the foundation begin to bubble out. I said, that's not as easy a fix as we thought. A little bit more is involved in this. And I have to tell her about that. And she's going to worry. So I'm going to do some research before I tell her. So that when I come with the bad news, I'm also going to come with the solution and try to turn her mind towards the solution, not just the bad. Some people only come with what's wrong. I don't need anybody to tell me what's wrong. Hmm. I live it every day. <laughs> Some people come and visit once a year. They want to tell me about what's wrong. Like I said, like, I'm too dumb to know. I know. The way to encourage me is if you can fix it, fix it. If you can pay for it to be fixed, that's good too. You know, but you don't have to just come and tell me what's wrong. I already know. <laughs> but what I also know is that this is a long-time project. We're in its infancy. So we have to be, uh, you know, uh, satisfied with baby steps. We have to have feelings of wishes. And if you don't have that mind, no, the, the Buddha tells us not to be careful who we go to. Jesus told us not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers because they just drag down your faith, your strength. You know, it's like dragging a dead person around. You're trying to accomplish something, there's somebody like hanging on for dear life. You know, it takes, that's all your energy. I'm just explaining these things so that we can kind of think about them and understand. You know what I mean? <laughs> and you want to know how to maintain your joy, then you cut yourself off from certain things so that you can. Stay focused and reserve your energy. And so, I think if we abandon this idea of practice and start thinking about this as a way of life, the way we choose to live, we will make more progress. In the and goods for the kind. Now, I like this. You know, if you want to give somebody a, a Christmas present or a birthday present, and while we're buying all the things we buy, buy this book. It's, 
It's uh, Angutara Nikaya. And this one is an easy read. That's why I say buy this one. Some of them are very difficult to understand. And uh, I like, I'm always, you know, talking about the Majima Nikaya. If you only have one book in your library, get this one. But I like this because I don't know how mindfulness got here in Trump concentration, but this is what I'm telling you. These are the best. This is our best stab at the original words of the Buddha. And out of these 100 and I think it's around 155 or 156 Dharma talks, probably 140 of them go into concentration. What it is, why it is, how it is, how to get there, how to stay there, and the fruit of good practice is right here. In uh, And so this is a, a great guide. But I like this one because, you know, they call them suttas, but a sutta is just one paragraph. <laughs> so, uh, and it's uh, done in like the book of ones, the book of twos, the book of threes, the book of fours, the book of fives, and it, and it goes up like that. So he talks about this one thing and then all the things he said about one. This, these two, the book of twos, all the things he said about these things, like right thought and wrong thought, you know, or, um, and, and so in the book of ones, here he says something about mind and this word mind here is translated um, cheetah. And, and it speaks of, and I forget, I didn't write it down, the, the word for luminous. <coughs> but that word in uh, Pali is attached to the word cheetah. So it's, it starts with a P, whatever that word is, hyphen, cheetah. Okay, and it's translated the luminous mind. Yeah, that's it. Papazachita. He says, luminous bhikkhus is this mind, but it is defiled by adventitious defilements. The uninstructed worldling does not understand this as it really is. Therefore, I say that for the uninstructed worldling, there is no development of the chitta, the mind. And then he goes on and says, this mind can be free from those defilements. The instructed noble disciple understands this as it really is. Therefore, I say that for the instructed disciple, there is the development of this teacher. He said, if for just the time of a finger snap, one pursues a mind of loving kindness, he is called one who is not devoid of jhana, who acts upon, acts, A-C-T-S, upon the teachings of the teacher, who responds to his advice, and who, do, and who does not eat the country's alms food in vain. And that he was speaking to Bickles, and we went around with a begging bowl, and people gave us food down and cooked it and, and put it on the table and we eat it. But it's to say that um, all that you give and all you offer should be one who is worthy to, to receive it. But he says that this is available to all of us depending on how well we understand the path and how well we actually practice it. That means choosing in the moment to practice it. Not when we're feeling good and want to read something and we agree with it, but in the moment when someone is, is uh, acting unseemly. Or in the moment when you're feeling down, you just feel disgusted with everybody, and you're going to just like tell them off. Or in the moment, you know, when something is happening, something's crashing, you're losing something. In the moment when the one you love dies, in the moment 
What would you do in that moment is the question. And so he shows us our way of escape with every temptation. Huh. With every temptation, there is a way of escape. And so he shows us that way of escape, but we have to walk it. And so he says that um, just the time of a finger snap, when one pursues this, the time of a finger snap, when one develops this, the time of a finger snap, when one attends to a mind of loving kindness, he will not be devoid of John entering into meditative attainment. So if we haven't developed the capacity to just love being kind, you can sit and meditate till the cows come home. <laughs> but you're not going to have attainment. It is not possible because the conditions that bring that about, that bring about that fruit, And so he gives us a step-by-step -step plan, a pattern, how to abandon the uh, unwholesome, how to take up the wholesome. And he says it's, uh, it's easy, but it's not easy. Why? Because the ego gets in the way. So I'm asking you this year, if you want to make progress, to commit to abandoning the ego. And to do that, he's given us a way, and he's given us a path, and he's given us a means, and I've given you one-third of the Dharma talk that I wrote, so we won't be able to finish it all today. I wish you could, because next week when I give the other half, you'll have forgotten the first half. <laughs> that's, why, that's why when the Buddha talked, he started with thing, and he went until he finished. I believe if it went all night, it was all right. But I know how you all are, one hour and 15 minutes, that's about it. So... I'm down to 17 minutes left, and I've committed to ending on time so that people don't get up and walk out while we're still talking. So I will be able to give it all to you today, maybe another occasion. We can stay until we chew it completely. Um, you know, nobody likes to have a lot of spit in their mouth. When uh, I was in Zen practice, we had, we had a, a practice where we had to chew something 50 times, you know. Uh, and then it, it was so much spittle in your mouth that, oh my goodness, you didn't even want to swallow it. You wanted to throw it out. You know, it was just too much. You know? But when we find the Dharma like this, like it just gets so good. You know? Because it's like, oh, I can see what hinders me. I can see. Now I can see. It's not like, shh, shh, shh. We don't want anybody to know. Everybody knows anyway. <laughs> it's like the emperor has no clothes on. You know, they might not say it to you, but if you see it, only one who can't see it is you. The car fooling them. No. The only ones that you're fooling are the ones who are also blind. But when you come into a place and there's a little bit of light, even a little, one match dispels a certain degree of darkness. So it's no thing, use of thinking that you can use your usual methods to obscure, to hide behind, or to fool those, even those who are on Dharma light, still have some light. So we can see and we can know. So when we come here, we're searching for an inner integrity. 
you know, dropping the pretense, dropping the facade. But we're also expecting something. We're expecting that we can come into a place and, and we will be accepted where we are. And that we, as long as we're putting forth the effort, that we will find the grace to be able to continue to develop. And then we'll see the example in one another. How committed to that are you? That's the question. Otherwise, there's many places to go for a feel-good moment. There's many places to go for, for escape, to hide. There's many places to go. But this is not one of those places. So we can imagine there may not be that many people here because they're not here long before, oops, the light is shown, and then they have to decide. Most run away. But those who have release in their view, they stay. And we just continue to shave away. We thought we were coming to a place where everybody play happy, happy. But it's the place where <laughs> we, we work at sharing I'll devour. And so it's a lot of sweeping up that has to take place. Because we're constantly sharing, constantly making a mess, and we're sweeping it up and forever setting it aside. That's this kind of place. And so I'd like to end with I'll piggybacking off of the, and go to I was speaking of this luminous mind. We don't exactly, maybe we shouldn't even use that mind because there's so many different, uh, well, there's several different words that have been translated mind. And there's uh, uh, many different understandings from our unenlightened side, but we're absolutely sure, really sure about what things mean. And so we attach to that, and it creates some confusion. But I'd like to invite you to go beyond just the words, or even exactly what we think they mean, but to where they're pointing. Because we only find out what they really mean directly, through direct experience. But he speaks of some kind of subtle continuum that is luminous, that has no beginning and has no end. And it is that which has been obscured by our karmic defilements. And yet it is still there. It's like the banana encased in a skin. And you start peeling back the skin. And there is the banana. There is that luminosity, a purified luminosity. And the peeling back of the skin is to remove the defilements. And when we are thus purified, then that, um, um, that luminous, bright, whatever it is, becomes apparent. Let's not call it anything. Because if it is the ultimate, that's going to be a little difficult for us to even put in words. But we can know that every action 
that we perform leaves either leaves some kind of imprint, either a potential, you know, on this uh, luminous aspect. And every action that we take also leaves uh, uh, or gives rise to its own effect. That when I do something, I'm planting some kind of a seed that's going to give some kind of harvest after its kind. So if I want to grow persimmons, I can't plant lemon seeds. Because all I'm going to get uh, is a lemon tree. I'm not going to get persimmons. But as we purify and begin to remove these obstacles, these fetters, these taints, these obscurations, that luminosity, that unboundedness begins to shine through. Then you don't have to say a word. It just naturally shines through and it brings light where there is darkness. And so these six things, study, we should study the advice of those that we consider wise ones. Meditate. Stepping away from what we see, hear, taste, touch, smell, and think. That conceptual thinking. Sitting. Just in the stillness. Just in the emptiness. Contemplation. Pondering and thinking about what we've read, what we've heard that's worthy to be held and looked to and looked after and protected and reserved and utilized. Effacement, the rubbing out of self. Not the building up of self, but the rubbing out of self. And we only do that when we are rubbed. It's like rubbing it off. Learning to hold our peace. Learning to, to be with others and uh, be charitable. Learning to cherish. To respect. Every attempt at doing good, even when the person fails, in understanding, really perceiving where a person is and what capacity they have, and that they're doing the best they can. And if I'm stronger, then I should bear up some of that. Reflection. Asking myself, how well am I doing? <laughs> with effacement, with contemplation, in meditation. Oh, let's come up with our own methods. You know, well, I, I do this. You know. And confession. And we don't hear that much about confession. Mostly because a lot of us came from Catholicism. We have some, some notions about that. You know, but you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Actually, in the right circumstances, the right conditions with the right people, it's a very wonderful practice. And the Buddha has it also in his teachings. He initiated a ceremony called Upavasata, which uh, is a word that means cleansing of the defiled mind. 
Uh, you know, here monks do it. We have a, a certain time of the month, actually twice a month, where we get together and because we don't, uh, Pani Deepa and I, we do it a little bit differently. We don't wait until the appointed time to confess, you know, our wrong thoughts or our wrongdoing or whatever. We like, as soon as it becomes apparent to me, take care of it. That's, that's the best way. But just in case you don't do that, he set aside a time every month where we come together. And we like, fess up. You know, there was something in that sharing, you know, um, with our fellow Sangha members. You know, the, 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 the nature of our unskillful and unwholesome thoughts and words and deeds in order to deepen our practice and experience a greater inner tranquility. And that requires two things. It requires the willingness to expose oneself and it requires being with good friends who can hold that. So some people can't tell something because you can't hold it. Tell you is to tell everybody. To tell you is for you to start thinking, um, you know, uh, mean and dirty thoughts about it. Instead of being able to, to take that and allow one to share and then come back with what the Dharma says of how to work with that. But instead we jump into ourselves our self-preservation mode, or, or our self-righteousness mode, or whatever. So it takes on both sides. It takes the willingness to acknowledge our faults, and it takes being with spiritual friends who can hold that. So we have to ask ourselves, where are we on both sides of that? But it's something about sharing our internalized guilt and shame that helps us take a, a vital step along the path of recovery and true healing. It gets us out of our story, out of our drama, out of our rolling something round and round in our mind. You know, and it brings like the light of integrity. We haven't even gotten to that place here yet that we can tell those things. But I would love for the time to come when we can hold something that is a lovely, when we can see both the beautiful and the ugly, and when we can see the ugly and the beautiful, then everything becomes even, oh, we are going someplace because the Dharma has some place to take us if we want to go. If we don't, we'll just be like, you know, an ordinary sinner with a spiritual title. Is that enough for you? I tell you, it's not enough for me. I'm headed somewhere. And we're trying to create a place for those who really want to enter into the rest that's an awakening to come. And it takes something for that to happen. It takes us being willing to examine ourselves. It takes us being willing to lay down the things that we recognize as me, my, and mine. It takes us being willing to acknowledge our fault 
And not just acknowledge them, but to work on them. <laughs> you know? And it takes us allowing people to have faults. And yes, we know they're false, but we don't have to call them faults. You know? We can just see where they are and say something that can encourage them. And if we can't do that, don't say anything at all. It takes contemplating and pondering this. Say, but every time we come to some conclusion that lines up with the Dharma, we find ourselves stronger, we find ourselves happier, we find ourselves um, from the inside out measuring up to a certain ideal, a certain integrity that we have for one that we call a true practitioner. But at some point we need to stop practicing and play in the real game. I don't want to just be the water boy. I don't want to be the one that the real players practice on. I don't want to be the one that gets tackled every Christmas with no glory. But I want the glory to be revealed in how I live my life. And this is the great invitation that learning the Dharma, knowing the Dharma, but then embodying the Dharma offers. And when that happens for us, you know, this is not hard. It's, it's not difficult to make progress on the path. It's when we're kicking against the pricks. It's, it's when we're like we're, uh, suppressing, pushing away. But when we lean in, tuck and roll, I call it. <laughs> You know, they say like drunks, when they have a car wreck, they just get up and walk away. They hardly hurt because they're not resisting the push. They're too drunk to even know. They're just boom. So it's something like that. Being drunk with the ambrosia of the Dharma. <laughs> I can't tell yeah. the sweetness of it. When it shows itself up in our confidence, in our ability, our capacity to overcome the vicissitudes of life, praise and blame, loss and gain, pleasure and pain, fame and shame. It's unspeakable joy. When one knows within oneself that they don't have to rely on another. When one knows for oneself that even when they've done their best and when they lose everything, there is really no loss because you cannot do better than your best. And then you can be satisfied, you can accept whatever happens. But you gotta know that you've done your best, your very best. And in this way we learn to be a lamp unto our own feet and a light unto our own path. And we learn to rely on ourselves. And what is it that we're relying on? When I know the Dharma, the truth that's in us. You can call this a science. I don't care what you call it. You can call it religion. I don't care what you call it. But get it. Because it's what we're searching for at the deepest parts of ourselves. It is that luminous, boundless, something that is locked in and captured by the egoic mind. 
and the opening and releasing the heart is one of the fastest ways that I know to get there. Because it sets our vision aright. When the heart is right, all is well. We can understand an instruction. We can put forth the effort to enter into it. But if the heart's not right, the house is not fit to live. So, going into our meditation and our personal practices, we necessarily have to consider our relationship with others. Necessarily. Necessarily have to get off the throne of I-ness. And one way is to keep slicing and dicing the self. The other is to turn our view to the other. And when our view is turned towards the other, we automatically forget about oneself. Don't worry. We won't forget completely. But we're so self-focused that the training is to focus on others and bring it into balance. Doesn't matter whether I'm depressed or have low self-esteem or have high self-esteem. It's still self-esteem. I'm telling you how to abandon the low and the high and just come to an equal liberty. And then we won't think even about self or others. We can take it to the next level then. But everything in its own time and in its own space. This is a center of practice where we endeavor to bring up our care for others equal with ourselves. This is the Dharma game. And I invite you to take up that line of service to others and find your joy. And upon that platform of joy, when one sits on the pillow, they can become And as they enter into the Dharma there, the Dharma that's self-revealing, then they will experience a sense of confidence. And that confidence brings about more joy. Until that joy bubbles over, and then there is just a sense of great peace and equanimity. Lay it all down. Lay it all down. Lay it all down. In service, can you lay it all down? Lay it all. Lay it all down. 
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.